This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We begin with the issue around increasing numbers of COVID-19 patients needing hospitalization and how that's affecting other patients, surgeries, and treatments. Hospital CEOs in COVID hot zones were told this past Tuesday by the government agency Ontario Health to create more inpatient beds for COVID patients. Fight Back wanted to know exactly how this will work. So on Wednesday, I reached out to Dr. Chris Simpson, incoming executive vice president of medical for Ontario Health. Ontario Health is a new agency. It's it's an amalgamation of several uh, crown agencies like Health Quality, Quality Ontario, Cancer Care Ontario, and others. Um, and it's been in existence now for, for about a year. But our predominant role is really to support um, Ontario's hospitals uh, right now through the pandemic. But uh, down the road, it will be to uh, uh, support them uh, as they carry out their mandate uh, post-pandemic. But right now, it's pr- predominantly pandemic work. Let's talk about the situation with the hospitals in the red and gray zones, the hospitals that have been asked to create 10 to 15 percent more inpatient beds for COVID patients. How easily is this done hospital by hospital? Yeah, it's a it's a great question again. And uh, the answer is, of course, it's not easy. Um, but I think we're, we're well equipped uh, to create that capacity. And, and there are several ways to do it. Um, w- one way is to help um, what we call uh, patient throughput or, or patient flow. Uh, so for patients who are in hospital, but uh, their care trajectory is destined to be uh, some somewhere else, say complex continuing care or a rehab facility or, or somewhere other than the acute care hospital, uh, we can work with uh, those other hospitals and the regions can help lead this. Uh, to accelerate that flow um, and get patients to where they need to be so that the acute care hospitals can can have more capacity. And and the other way, of course, is to um, use, I, I like to call it the dimmer switch model, where we anticipate how much more capacity is needed. We look at some of the scheduled care that is um, planned, um, also known as elective uh, surgeries and procedures, mm-hmm. and and turn them down just enough to create the right amount of capacity to accommodate COVID. I think what we really want to avoid doing is creating too much capacity because, um, you know, it, it's very easy, in quotation marks, to just stop doing uh, elective uh, procedures as as happened in, in wave one. But if, if, the, if the net result of that is that we leave capacity on the table, uh, you know, if, if the COVID wave comes and goes and we had empty beds, then, th- then that means we, we, uh, we dimmer switched too much. And so we have to look after both the COVID patients and the non-COVID patients um, and finding that balance so that we squeeze every little bit of capacity out of our system that we can is, is the challenge. And, and the solutions will look different for every hospital depending on their unique profile, uh, their workforce, um, you know, where else in the region patients might be able to go instead? You know, how do we load share some of the, uh, of the hard hit areas with, with areas that have a bit more capacity? All of that kind of um, 
working together piece, I think, will ensure that uh, the burden of this wave is is uh, shared equitably. And outside the GTA, Windsor, Essex, uh, the COVID hotspots, is it possible that other hospitals outside of those regions could come in to help in terms of using air ambulances, that kind of thing, to transport patients from these hotspots to areas where the hospitals might be a little more quiet? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's... Um, when we imagine patients moving around or even, um, uh, you know, healthcare workers moving around, we imagine that happens sort of within, um, uh, within regions or within areas. Um, but certainly, I don't think it would be off the table to consider uh, patients uh, or resources uh, moving from one centre to another uh, in, in extreme situations. Um, but, but I think we know that patients and families really don't like to be 300 kilometres away. That's quite a, a burden for them. Um, but, but certainly, I think um, having an all-of-system holistic approach to this um, in, the, in the interest of equity and in the interest of delivering as much care as we possibly can, I think all of those things are on the table for discussion. Dr. Chris Simpson, incoming Executive Vice President of Medical for Ontario Health. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still on the topic of COVID hospitalizations, right after my conversation with Dr. Simpson, I was joined by Ontario NDP critic Marit Stiles. The situation that we find ourselves in, there's there's no question it's concerning. I, I, I'm worried. Uh, I think most Ontarians are deeply worried to see hospitals being told to activate their emergency plans. Um, and of course, you know, one of the concerns will be, will people have to wait uh, for important procedures? Uh, will they see their surgeries delayed? And I really appreciated what he said about the efforts being made to try to ensure that doesn't happen. But but, you know, at the same time, we know that it will happen in some cases. Uh, this is what we've all been trying to avoid. And so I think it's disconcerting. And, and we, you know, as you mentioned in the opposition, uh, certainly one of our jobs is to be critical, but it's also to propose solutions. And I'm a little disappointed that the government uh, did not uh, take certain actions. I think if they had, we might not find ourselves in this situation. What do you think is the way to go here? Well, look, I mean, there's a number of things that have to happen. And certainly in terms of the zones and those restrictions, that the, the word has to come from public health. It's essential. Um, but, but what I will say is that waiting for a vaccine the way that Mr. Ford has been doing and, and talking about over the last few days does not seem like much of a plan. And um, we know that uh, the premier, that the, the government has been sitting on $12 billion in COVID fund, in COVID relief dollars. And we think this is the time where the government needs to to spend some of those in ways that are going to help prevent the spread, the further spread and transmission of COVID. So, you know, introducing workplace testing, uh, starting it with large workplaces like manufacturing facilities, uh, expanding in-school testing province-wide. We've been calling for that for, for months and months. Uh, we need to catch those asymptomatic cases before they cause more of an outbreak. Um, and of course, you know, we've been talking about this for, for, for months again, is, is guaranteeing paid sick days, paid family care days so that parents can, workers can stay home uh, if they're sick or if they have a child that's experiencing symptoms. A lot of people right now just don't have that ability. Uh, they can't isolate at home uh, because they'll miss a paycheck. That's just a choice nobody should have to make. 
And the case numbers in long-term care are also uh, correspondingly very concerning. Uh, Not to put you on the spot, but I know it's on your radar. Deputy Leader Sarah Singh was talking about it in the legislature a couple of weeks ago, and that is the CARP campaign uh, calling for Premier Ford to fire his long-term care minister, Dr. Fullerton. Oh, yeah. Um, That has gained a lot of traction. The online petition has seen thousands of signatures. Uh, Is that part of the solution in your mind, in your view? You know, I I have to say, I want to thank CARP for doing that. I I think it's really important that the voices of Ontarians are heard on this matter. I certainly personally have suggested that the Minister of Long-Term Care should have resigned. She should have resigned back in the spring when the first outbreaks happened. I mean, it was a massive failure of government and a massive failure. Anybody in that position should offer their letter of resignation right away. I'm appalled that she didn't do that. And uh, I'll keep pushing for it. And, you know, I, I have to say it, it is it is though on the premier. It is on the premier at the end of the day, too, that he has not pushed her uh, on that issue and to resign. Um, but, you know, what's really astonishing to me now, actually, is that we haven't seen the lessons learned. We saw the outbreaks in the spring. They were absolutely awful. Uh, we saw so many lives lost. And yet here we are again. And we know that the solutions were there to limit that um, impact in long-term care facilities, to limit the death. And, and here we are again with the same things happening. It's, it's, it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely terrible. And the government knows what they need to do. And I, I mean, I, I don't disagree that the minister should resign. Ontario NDP critic Marit Stiles. Join the thousands who've already signed the petition by going to carp.ca. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, more on the Ford Tories' response to the dire situation in long-term care. As well, you'll want to stay around to hear the story of a perfectly healthy 65-year-old who has died of complications related to COVID-19. It's a message to all of us to take this virus very seriously. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It certainly sounds good, an investment of up to $1.9 billion a year for Ontario's long-term care sector to hire 27,000 personal support workers. But this promise by Premier Doug Ford and his long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, is for 2025. The announcement came down Thursday afternoon, right after Libby Snymer spoke with Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and lawyer Jane Meadis at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. You would take the position, of course, that they're not doing everything possible. I think this has been mishandled. Um, you know, really, the situation hasn't changed. And in fact, they're, you know, frankly, they're rewarding the bad actors. Um, Orchard View, which was one of the homes taken over, you know, that had the Canadian Armed Forces in, which, um, you know, had one of the worst reports, got new beds. Do you think that, uh, you know, this campaign to fire the minister is something that can result in action by the government? Well, potentially if they got, you know, got the right person in. But the problem is, is that I, you know, it, it goes, I think, up to right to the premier, right? So 
you, you, we hear a lot of things from the premier. We hear a lot of things that, you know, we're doing everything, but unless there's a will to change, actually change things in long-term care, um, you know, does it really matter if we change the, the minister, um, if they're just going to continue on doing the same thing? And unfortunately, I'm not, you know, convinced that there would be much change, unfortunately. Well, unless they decided to give whoever the new minister would be a, a little more power, I mean, that would be a signal, I guess, that they're taking the whole thing a little more seriously, Bill. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would be. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's really sad that we have to focus on a, a woman who, is, who was an excellent doctor for, for 30 years uh, what we're saying really is, I mean, the, the buck does, does stop with the, uh, with the minister, uh, and, but the premier has talked about his uh, concern for the, what he called the worst reports, the most heart-wrenching reports, yet he doesn't seem to be able to move the ministry either. And what are the bureaucrats thinking and doing within that ministry right now. Don't I mean we can't ask for them to be fired. They're protected as, as bureaucrats are. But that's where it stops. And they're the ones who aren't supporting their uh, minister. And hopefully that'll wake them up and get some real action, not just promises. Jane, how I see it with the premier, you know, he sees something like that report. He has maybe good intentions. He gets all upset. We know that. And then, you know, um, there are too many people saying no way. Absolutely. And I think that's the problem is that, you know, they're listening to the industry. Um, they've backed themselves into a corner um, with the system uh, right now. Um, you know, how, how do you fix it when you don't have the staff, you don't have the money going into it? I mean, he could put all the money he wants into hiring PFWs, but if there's none available, you can't do that. You know, until the ministry and, and perhaps the shakeup in the ministry will do that. We need to get really good leadership who's going to say, we are not going to take this anymore. And these people who are taking millions of dollars from the provincial coffers have to um, make changes. And, and if they refuse to do it, we're, we have to change the system. But they are listening to the lobbyists. I have no question. Bill, what would you like to leave us with? That we've got to keep the uh, the pre- pressure on one way or the other. Uh, this uh, spiraling uh, uh, a, a new sets of cases in long-term care and in the entire province have to be stopped. And the premier and the minister and the department have to start doing something about it. And hopefully we'll hear them announce that they're taking some real action and not just uh, airy-fairy plans for the long-time future. Okay, uh, Jane? We need uh, more money, we need more staff, uh, and we need more uh, enforcement. Okay. I think that that's what we need to do. Jane Medes at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, along with Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. One of the more touching and heartbreaking stories about COVID-19 we've heard was told to us this past week by Luciana Krupe of Markham. Luciana lost her 65-year-old husband, Joe, to complications related to COVID-19. And now she and her adult children are honoring Joe by fundraising for hospitals and by asking all of us to take the threat of COVID-19 seriously. Luciana told me her healthy husband 
started experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 about five weeks before he died December 6th. It was in October, late October. He he went to work. Uh, he, he was actually staying home, had stayed home since the onset of COVID back in March. But unfortunately, he had to go see some buildings because he's, he's a director of construction. He had to go see some buildings and um, he had only gone out maybe two or three times and contracted it there. Started feeling, you know, just minor chills, a little bit of a cough, and he decided he wanted to go get tested. We waited for the results, and when they came in positive, we almost we 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 were shocked. So then the following day, I decided to go get tested because I started getting a headache. So I too got COVID, but on a whole different level. Um, he got it worse than I did, and then within days, it started to escalate. His breathing started to become labored. I decided to call 911 and he went to Markham Stovall Hospital. Within 20 minutes, they called me to tell me that he was going to be intubated. And again, I was, I, I was shocked because I thought, can't you just give him a little bit of oxygen and let it go and then see how he goes from there? And they said, no, he has to go on, an, on a ventilator. So that was the last time I spoke to him because after that, he was heavily sedated and in a paralytic, paralytic state. Did they explain to you um, what was happening in his lungs? Well, basically, he kept getting all these infections, and he couldn't fight these infections. Uh, he would, he would, he was at the end. Ultimately, he was forming these cysts, and these cysts would burst, and they'd form, form scar tissue. So his lungs were becoming almost like, oh my gosh! Like he, there were no signs of lungs when you saw his X-rays. You couldn't see an actual lung. It was just a big white cloud. Mm. So there was, they were so rigid that they weren't even able to move. That's how much damage the COVID did. He actually managed to fight off the COVID. The COVID, he didn't die having COVID, but he died from complications of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has brought you to tell your story the way you are on television, uh, print, and, and radio? Well, it really started with just the fundraiser that we wanted to start it. Nowhere did we think that it was going to get this far with TV and media and all that. Uh, but we are more than happy, more than happy, despite we're, the fact that we're going through so much grief and devastation. We're more than happy to get our message out there and hope that somebody else takes away from this because there are people out there. I know I read the, I read social media and I, and I'm, all over it, and I hear what people are saying not to wear a mask, and how dare they tell me to wear a mask and you know i'm gonna I'm gonna have people over at my house, regardless of what they say, like that just can't be happening. It just cannot be happening. We have to keep our distance, we have to abide by the rules that the government is telling us, and with any hope, if we have that small sacrifice that every family should take then maybe one day we can all be together. But it seems like people are just not wanting to take that sacrifice. And that's what just, it, it's, it's infuriating. It really is. For those who would like to get involved, uh, spare some funds uh, to donate in Joe's memory. Tell us how we can do that. Yes, certainly. It's um, If you go to uh, support.mshf.ca, 
You can click on that and then click donate. You can search for Joe Krupe and his name will come up and the donation page will come up. And I, I appreciate anything that anybody can do. I know that uh, it's Christmas. I know a lot of people have donated to Toronto General. And if they could just give a little something, anything to Markham Stouffville, uh, we, my family would be totally appreciative of all that. Luciana Krupe of Markham with her story of loss due to COVID-19. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Linda in Hamilton called to advocate for further restrictions to bring down the COVID numbers. Back on July 29th, he's been keeping track. Ontario had 76 new cases that were reported. And I think the highest it had been previous to that was back on the 24th of April, it was 640. Nothing near the 2,000 and some that we have now. And I'm just wondering if a stricter lockdown is the answer to to help the numbers go down and stay down. Dennis in Brampton called to say he's in favor of an ongoing lockdown in Peel region. I would like to see not only what's currently in place lockdown, but uh, further restrictions and I can only point to our success uh, over the summer months in getting it down with a tighter lockdown. And further, looking at what Quebec is doing, Mm -hmm. it seems to me that we're avoiding here doing what is going to be absolutely necessary. And I I would also point out that over the summer, many of the factors that have been pointed to that occur in in Brampton, particularly with essential workers, et cetera, uh, what changed in September as things started to go up again were kids went back to school. And I I can't help but think, from a, and I've, I've seen the infection rate, but now that we're testing in schools, I can't help but think that schools are a significant factor. Bob in Etobicoke has an opposing view on lockdowns. I don't agree with extending it. Matter of fact, I don't agree with the lockdown as it is, because what has happened, uh, I have friends that live in a building in Etobicoke, not too far from Doug uh, Ford's office. And this building is an apartment building. And with the lockdown, the parking lot in the daytime is full of cars because nobody's working. So they socialize among themselves. On one floor, there's three families that have the, the virus now. And uh, a friend of mine lives on that floor, and they're really concerned. If they were working, they wouldn't be socializing and sitting, you know, having a cup of coffee with their neighbors, having, you know, a beer at night, watching TV. They would be going home from work, going to sleep, going to work the next day. But because they're all home, they're socializing in the building, and it's spreading like wildfire. Owen in Brampton phoned to say mandatory masking in workplaces needs to be enforced. I'm trying in my workplace 
to advocate for mandatory mask wearing. I'm the only person in a, a crew of six that does. Everyone else seems to think that it's not necessary and that I'm being silly. Uh, it seems to me that if we had a mandatory mask policy in the workplace, that we could actually all help uh, protect one another. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Margaret in Mississauga, who lives in a long-term care home, and told us about a regular cost she now has to incur because of the pandemic. Mr. Ford was given a great deal of money, I understand, from uh, the Liberal government to support the homes, the retirement homes, uh, and so far we haven't seen any of it. And I'll tell you my problem is I'm 94, my daughter is a designated uh, caregiver. Now I learn that every time she comes to see me, she must buy a, a special gown. I have to pay $15 every time she comes, and she must destroy it uh, as she goes out the door. And to me, I haven't got $15 to put down the sewer every time she comes. Right. What is Mr. Ford doing with that money? Is he saving it and saying, uh, when the election comes up, look at us. I've balanced the budget. And to my mind, it's on the back of the seniors. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.